Welcome to Huddle with Your Accountant, hosted by Selden Fox's own Dan DiMario. Here is Dan now with Episode 1. podcast listeners, and welcome to the very first Huddle With Your Accountant podcast. I'm your host, Dan DiMario, here at our Sullivan Fox Studios in Oakbrook, Illinois. Today's podcast topic is Schedule A, What Are Taxpayers Missing?, where we will dive below the surface of what every taxpayer, big or small, is always looking for, tax deductions. Now, we are focusing on Schedule A, which, as most of you are familiar with, reports all of your individual itemized deductions. More than just us reciting what is eligible for these deductions, We'll give some of the tips and tricks that will help wring out some additional tax savings from these deductions and clue you in on some of the items that you may not have thought about before. Now with me today, I have Paul Rosick, one of Sullivan Fox's tax vice presidents who has over 15 years of experience helping clients find and secure deductions of just this sort. Paul, how are we doing today? Yep, everything's going good, Dan. Happy to be here. Now, are you ready to get started? Yep, sure. Let's go. So, Paul, we all can read instructions and see the item categories on Schedule A, but what exactly should taxpayers be on the lookout for to maximize their itemized deductions? Yeah, Dan, um, everybody's always looking for deductions. We all know that there's, there's no single magic bullet that's going to be able to wipe out your tax bill. And like you said, we can all read through the instructions and see what those deductions are. But after a number of years and a lot of experience, you can get a sense of how some of the nuances that are attached to those deductions um, can actually increase their value or make them more usable for you. And that's what uh, I think we should jump in and, and talk about today. Perfect. So medical deductions are the first part of Schedule A, and given the amount of political changes we've seen with the health care the last five years, what are some of the issues you are looking for in this area? Yeah, the, the, well, the number one key here for medical deductions is you've got to have a good relationship with your doctor. That's where a lot of these things uh, are generated from. Uh, a lot of things that you may not think about uh, as being deductible uh, may actually be deductible. We all know that you can deduct the costs of your health insurance, you can deduct the costs of your co-pays, but there's a lot of things out there that people don't realize. If you have a service animal, the cost and the care of that service animal might be a deductible medical expense. Um, if you have special uh, accommodations that need to be made in terms of your education, or a, a particular school that you attend, uh, and there's costs associated with that uh, as a result of a medical condition that you or, or one of your dependents may have, those can be deductible medical expenses too. And of course, there's always case-by-case -case analysis, and, and there's been several IRS cases where things like uh, a swimming pool that was used, uh, installed and used to alleviate a taxpayer's arthritis became a tax deduction, or a taxpayer that had a, uh, a dental problem with an overbite where they began taking clarinet lessons, found out that those tended to alleviate the symptoms and, uh, and the causes uh, of, of medical pain. The clarinet lessons, the clarinet uh, itself, uh, the cost of that became a tax deduction as well. So the, the important thing in medical deductions, like I said, is all of these things, as long as they're undertaken under the instruction of a medical professional and you have got an appropriate medical diagnosis, that's the important key in, in taking some of these unusual items and turning them into tax deductions. 
Perfect. Paul, you're spot on. Now, there are a lot of items that can constitute medical care, but the most important takeaway from this topic is your doctor must recommend the course of medical treatment in order to solidify your position that the medical expense should be and will be deductible. Right, and that's something the IRS is going to look for. They're going to look for that documentation. Uh, And if you've got it contemporaneously documented uh, in terms of a diagnosis and a prescribed treatment, uh, prescribed method of care, uh, that's the important part there. Now, moving on. Most taxpayers are aware that they can deduct their state income taxes on their federal return. But now Congress has permanently extended the sales tax deduction as an option as part of the PATH Act of 2015. As a tax advisor and consultant, how do you normally approach this deduction? What should taxpayers be watching for? Yeah, with with the sales tax versus income tax deduction uh, that are both out there now, you have to pick one or the other. But what you may not realize is you can change year to year depending on which is most beneficial. So sometimes what it comes down to is is proper planning. And what you can do is try to bunch together uh, large purchases, items like cars or boats and things like that. If those are bunched together in a single year, they're gonna, they may produce a, a tax deduction uh, for that year that's in excise or in excess of your income tax as opposed to if they were spread out over the span of two years, you're paying the same sales tax, but it's not going to give rise to any additional tax deductions because it's not going to exceed the amount of state income tax you're paying. So the planning aspect uh, comes, into, comes into play with those as well. Um, another thing that we see quite frequently in, in, in deducting uh, sales taxes and income taxes is taking a closer look at your residency. If you have a home in Illinois and also a home in Florida or Texas, uh, you know, two states that don't have an income tax, it might make sense to see whether you can change your legal domicile. If you move your tax residency, for example, from Illinois to Florida, not only do you avoid paying Illinois income taxes, but because you no longer have that Illinois income tax, whatever sales tax you were paying now becomes deductible. Um, and an additional tax everyone knows, you can deduct your, your property and, and real estate taxes, but something people may not be aware of is that any property uh, that has a tax that's assessed based on its value, you know, a vacation home, uh, vacant lands, um, cars in some states uh, have a tax assessed based on their value, all of those taxes uh, are going to be deductible. Now, in conjunction with our discussion about the real estate tax deduction, we know most taxpayers start itemizing when they buy their first house. A major component of this itemization is a trivial to the mortgage interest deduction. The black letter law holds the mortgage interest deduction is based upon debt up to $1 million. So how can taxpayers minimize, I'm sorry, maximize this deduction? Yeah, we, we try not to minimize deductions ever, Dan, but one thing we can do uh, in order to maximize them is, is to make sure that we take a look and evaluate all the different types of debt that you hold and try to make that debt as tax deductible as possible. So for example, if you took out a home equity line of credit to uh, do some work on your house and the balance ends up being over $100,000, you know, we would need to restructure that debt into the mortgage to maximize the deductibility. Similarly, if you're carrying debt on uh, a, a different item, such as a, a boat or an RV, some people don't realize, because it feels like personal property, that this can actually be considered a mortgage. Um, if your boat or your RV has you know, the items that the IRS looks for in, in defining these 
purchases as a residence, it's going to be deductible as a mortgage. And those things are if it has a place to cook, a place to eat, and an installed toilet, you have a, you have a residence essentially. So, so that boat or that RV, instead of carrying a debt that is not tax deductible, we can call it a residence and make it deductible. So a place to cook, a place to eat, and an installed toilet. Those three things do tend to go together, I guess. So the interest paid on property is a small sliver of the overall interest deduction. There are definitely a lot of options out there. How should taxpayers decide where to carry their debt? You, know, you can carry on a house, a car, a boat, a credit card, even against your investment portfolio. So let's now delve into this topic. Is carrying debt on a taxpayer's investment portfolio a good option? Right. Investment interest. If, if you're producing investment income, meaning taxable dividends, interest, capital gains, not municipal or tax-exempt income, mind you, investment interest can be a really good place to carry your debt. Why? Because you can preserve your deductions potentially year to year. So for example, if you're paying $40,000 of interest on your mortgage that you use to buy your house, but your business uh, income is down this year to the point where you're not going to get a benefit from that residence interest, uh, you're not going to be able to take a deduction, and that deduction is lost. Uh, in comparison, if you had that same $40,000 of interest expense on your investment portfolio uh, so that you could buy and purchase uh, stocks or bonds, you may not be able to use it this year because, like we said, your income is down, but as an investment interest, it's going to be an item that you can carry forward into future years. So instead of being lost, the deduction is basically deferred. And that goes back to the point of making sure that we take a look at all the debt that's being carried and see if there's ways to arrange it uh, to maximize the deductibility, if not in the present year, to uh, increase the deductibility in future years. So basically what you're saying is with carry forward, it's not a matter of if you can use it, it's a matter of when you can use it. Right. You've got to make sure that whatever you're paying, you get a deduction for it. And if it's not this year, uh, securing that for, for the future. Excellent. So big picture, there are numerous factors going into your debt, including rates, secured property, usability, and carry-forward attributes. These are all items that can be manipulated to get the best possible deduction. So this definitely bears review and planning to make sure you're maximizing this deduction. Keep in mind, interest is the largest individual income tax deduction available on Schedule A. In fact, with recent federal government studies showing interest expense accounts for $79 billion, that's B, of tax expenditures, making ranking it once again number one as the largest item on Schedule A. Now, switching gears from paying to giving is charitable contributions. Depending on your level of charitable expenditures, there's a potential for a tremendous amount of record-keeping for taxpayers. So, Paul, what can we tell the listener about this area? Yeah, with charitable giving, people have generally gotten pretty good at keeping the documentation uh, that's needed and appropriate, and most charities really do a pretty good job of providing those, those receipts especially when you're gifting cash or gifting something easy to value like marketable securities. It's pretty straightforward. Where we really tend to pay attention to these items and, and try to um, make sure that we're maximizing on deductions is when we look at non-traditional gifting strategies. Uh, those are situations where we're making major lifetime gifts, perhaps to an alma mater or to a church, or donations of non-cash, hard-to-value property or real estate. Um, we really like to take a look and explore the use of things like donor-advised funds 
charitable trusts or using community foundations. I really tend to like these because they allow you to really time your deductions when it's most valuable to you. Uh, the reason being you can take a tax deduction in years where you have the highest income and the deduction carries uh, the most value and then items can come out of a charitable trust or a donor advised fund to the charity as you see fit. So what you're able to do is bunch your charitable deductions into the years where they're most valuable even though uh, the amounts aren't actually getting to the charity until the charity needs them or you want to disperse them. So in addition to our cash contribution discussion. Of course, the IRS loves to challenge the value of non-cash items given to charitable organizations. So making sure to obtain a qualified appraisal is a key component. Now, what other tips can we give the listeners? Yeah, in terms of non-cash, hard-to-value items, uh, the key, like you said, is having uh, the proper qualified appraisal in place. Uh, that means it has to meet certain requirements, one of them being it has to be done or, or dated no earlier than 60 days before the donation is made. Um, another thing that people might not always uh, understand is it has to be a qualified appraisal done by an independent appraiser. That means if you're donating property to your alma mater, your alma mater can't supply the person or employ the person who is doing the appraisal. Uh, so we have there are certain things in there uh, that define a qualified appraisal that we like to work with our clients on, make sure they're getting the proper appraisal done, making sure they're maximizing the value uh, of that hard-to-value property to the point where we'll be able to substantiate that if it's ever called into question under audit. Perfect. Rounding out Schedule A are the underutilized 2% miscellaneous deductions. Now, when many taxpayers think of itemized deductions, they only consider the big four, all of which Paul and I previously discussed. We have the medical expense deduction, the deductions for home mortgage interest, state and local income and property taxes, as well as charitable contributions. However, itemized deductions are not limited to these groups. Large classes of deductions are lumped together in a category called miscellaneous itemized deductions. They are deductible only to the extent they exceed 2% of a taxpayer's adjusted gross income. Now, Paul, what are the items taxpayers could potentially deduct but for whatever reason are not aware of? Yeah, in the miscellaneous deductions category, some of the ones we see most frequently, one of them is advisory fees. So if you have a financial advisor or a broker that you're paying annual dues to to manage your portfolio, those are advisory fees. And yeah, you can deduct them, but it's not always as simple as taking uh, the fees that you paid and dropping them onto the schedule. There's multiple ways that you can allocate those fees uh, as they are attached to your equity portfolio or your fixed income portfolio, which is oftentimes tax-exempt. And depending on where you stand in relation to things like the alternative minimum tax, the easiest computation on uh, how to apply those advisory fees may not always yield the best tax deductions. There's also other professionals' fees, namely tax accountants and attorneys' fees. Everyone knows you can deduct the fees that you pay to prepare your tax return, but many people don't realize that if you have a Schedule C or a Schedule E on your tax return because you did some work for a side job or as an independent contractor, you may be able to move some of those deductions off of Schedule A and actually move them onto Schedule C or Schedule E where they're not subject to the limitations you mentioned, Dan, and, and essentially you get a little bit more bang for your buck in terms of uh, you know, the dollar value of those deductions. And that's a major factor for Schedule C filers, because keep in mind, if you're filing a Schedule C, 
not only are you paying income tax, but you're also paying self-employment tax, two tiers of tax, basically. So anytime a taxpayer can move an expense from Schedule A that's not being deducted to Schedule C, you know, not like I said before, it's a matter of us minimizing your overall self-employment tax. Yeah, one other item in there that we frequently see in the miscellaneous category is fees that we're paying to attorneys, like I mentioned. Um, there's specific rules regarding what fees you pay to an attorney are deductible and which fees are not. And oftentimes you may get a bill from an attorney that doesn't really designate uh, what the actual fee was for. It'll just be for professional services. Well, one thing we do with our clients is we make sure that we work with their attorney and have the attorney provide bills that are labeled and detailed in such a way that we maximize the deductible expenses that they're paying to the attorneys. Paul, excellent insight on these under-the-radar deductions available on Schedule A. Now, listeners, remember, the itemized deduction subject is a very broad topic. So if any of our listeners have a question about a specific area, please contact Paul or myself at www.seldonfox.com. Now, before we break from today's huddle, remember, we account for your future here at Selden Fox. So we want to hear from you, the listener. Hit us up on Twitter, at Selden Fox. That's at S-E-L... D-E-N-F-O-X. And also follow us on LinkedIn and let us know what issues or topics you want to hear from our team in a future Huddle podcast. Again, a big thanks this episode to our guest Paul Rosick, as well as our podcast director Marianne Adams and producer Nick Behind the Glass. Look for another Huddle podcast in the upcoming months discussing the income tax do's and don'ts when starting a small business. Until next time, this is Dan DiMario, and thanks for listening.